Welcome to the JMS Podcast with me, Jorge M. Sanchez. Friendly reminder that you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. And you can also follow the JMS Podcast on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't forget the official website, jmspodcast.com. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We have a great guest. Today's guest is the artist and illustrator, Baron Story. This guy is a big deal. I'm very ha- I feel very fortunate to have a chat with him. And he drove a long way to get here. And I want to give a big shout out to his significant other, who is Petra. She is the one who really coordinated with me in putting this thing together. And much thank you, Petra, for everything. And uh, I believe... There's a lot to learn from this conversation. Uh, he is a very emotionally engaging uh, person, and I, I was, I was just, you know, like, you know, I, I really gotta pay attention here. I really gotta listen to him, and and he has a lot of great things to offer. And you're like, I never heard of Baron's story. Well, you might not have heard of him, but you've seen his work. He's worked for the National Geographic, he worked for NASA, he worked for a variety of places, and most notably, he is well known for his illustrations for the Sandman comics for Neil Gaiman. So, wow, that's a pretty big deal, right? You're like, Jorge, how did you end up getting that caliber of a guest? Well, you know, I have my way sometimes. Uh, But man, he is such a great person. He has a show coming up in San Jose on April 6th, and uh, we'll talk about that a bit more. And I just want to give a, a, a huge shout out to all the listeners supporting this podcast. A huge shout out to everybody who's following the JMS podcast. Um, I think we are coming to the end of the third season pretty soon. We're about four episodes out. And I, I, I think we got some good things coming along the way. So uh, let's head on over to my chat with Baron. Uh, but before I do that, don't forget that you can uh, email me for any reason at all. If you have any questions, concerns, or or whatevs, you just you, maybe you just want to say hi. Maybe you, you're like Jorge. I kind of listen to you most of the time. I listen to your podcast to fall asleep, which I have gotten email that said that. Uh, but I just want to say hi. I was like, you know, that's nice. I like getting emails from from listeners. So you can email me at jmspodcast at gmail.com. All right, let's get on with it. Here is my conversation with Baron Story. Yeah. Uh, before we start, I do got you know that Petro told me uh, to remind you that you are a very handsome, dashing man, <laughs> which I must admit you you've aged very gracefully. Uh, well. Petra is uh, always a booster, I must say. How close do I have to be to this pop filter? Uh, that's perfect. That okay. perfect. I got your levels. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I'm 28 and I'm already balding. So I, I'm, I'm, I hope to only age as graceful as you are. <laughs> <laughs> you look like a million bu- bucks. <laughs> I have a million bucks. A million scripts. But uh, I, I looked up in your background, it looks like you were born in Texas. Yep, that's right. Uh, was, is it Dallas, Texas? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm wondering, someone who was born, when were you raised in Dallas? Yeah. How did you not become a football player? <laughs> um, when I was uh, uh, in Dallas, the idea of being a football player was not as um, viral as it is today. 
As a matter of fact, we had more enthusiasm for our local college team, which is SMU, Southern Methodist, than we did for any other, and the Cowboys did not exist. Mm. So uh, it was pretty natural. I played football uh, in high school. What position? I was a tackle, you know, which, you know, left me with a bad taste for football, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> you get hit quite quite a lot. Yeah, and it's sort of like, it's kind of, uh, it's almost as though you have to like being hit and hitting to really enjoy it. It's more aggression than it is uh, skill. Hmm. And you never caught on to that? No, no. I, w- I liked basketball. That was better. Oh, that was your sport of choice? Yep, yep. Do you still follow it? Oh, well, I'm in San Francisco. We got the Warriors. I'm, I'm bound to follow it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you can't, you can't escape it. You can't yeah, escape it. we've got Steph Curry and uh, others, you know, to, to watch, check in with, hmm. watch games. Yeah. But how would you best describe your upbringing in, in Texas, in Dallas, Texas? And did, did you have anybody who around you that was artistic and creative that kind of planted the seed? Both my parents are artistic and creative. My dad is an architect and a builder and an inventor. And uh, my mother was literary and uh, read constantly and uh, informed me of things, uh, you know, that I would be needing in school. Mm-hmm. My teachers were very impressed because I would write essays based on my mother's recommendations that were way advanced for my age. I didn't even know what I was writing, really. <laughs> I was writing about Goethe before I knew how to pronounce Goethe. <laughs> you know? uh, so par- both parents were educators? I'm sorry? Were both parents educators? No, no, no. no, no. You- my, my dad, as I said, was an architect. He worked building houses and designing uh, buildings. And uh, my mother... Uh, was not an educator, but she was um, a, uh, what would you call it, um, social activist. Oh, okay. Yeah, she had a very a strong interest in uh, Native American affairs, and we traveled out to New Mexico pretty frequently, and she would uh, interact with the uh, local people out there to try to get them a bit of justice. Hmm. What, what kind of stuff did your father invent? Um my dad would uh, was capable of inventing just about anything. When he was 16 years old, he made his own airplane. I'm not talking a model plane. I'm talking a flying plane. He got interested by hanging out at Love Field, which was the local airport in Dallas in those days. And he saw that the, uh, they had big scrap bins where they left a lot of stuff. <laughs> and he started building from that stuff. He built a flyable airplane at 16 he did not have the money to buy an engine for it so he sold it to a rich fellow who put an engine into it and flew it did he fly it himself or did he have test pilots Uh, my dad never flew the plane that he built as far as I know but I never asked him that question yeah Yeah. (laughs) so he he was coming up with stuff all my life you know he would uh, my little brother got interested in go-karts and um, I have three brothers. My youngest brother was uh, interested. The older ones were interested as well. And my dad came up with an amazing go-kart. 
he thought of something that nobody else had thought of, which is all you need is a starter motor and a car battery. And you're good to go. And with my little brother in that thing, man, it went like a bat. And, uh, you know, my brothers picked up on my dad's experimentalism and they got interested in rockets. And um, they built their own rocket engine. We had a big shop out behind the house. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were taught welding and metalwork and all that sort of thing. And um, they they were um, theoretical enough to understand that if you, you put oxygen and petroleum together and lit the fuse, you had a rocket engine. And uh, so they built a test bed that was stood uh, on a flat sheet of metal welded down. They put it out behind my dad's shop ran the oxygen from his welding outfit out to it, put some gasoline inside, or maybe it was another fuel, I don't know. Oh boy. And lit it. It was like a 30-foot column of fire sticking up out of our neighborhood. Caused a huge, huge alarm. You know, but things like that were happening all the time around uh, my dad. Was he this was just very... Very interested innovator. I went on to build my own car with my dad's help. And um, what did you model it after? It was it was one of those things where you sent off for plans, a little ad in the back of a magazine like Mechanics Illustrated or Motor Trend or something, and you get plans uh, and suggestions on what to do. Um, I had an all welded uh, frame that I made. And then uh, various people contributed stuff. Hmm. Um, I had a, a neighbor who has become a famous rock and roller, Steve Miller, and I hung out at the Miller house a lot. And Dr. Wait, Miller, wait. his Steve, the Steve Miller band, yeah, Steve Miller, Steve Miller. Oh boy, fly like an eagle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some call me Maurice. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my friend down the street, and uh, Steve. And his brother Buddy were my close friends, and Steve was younger than me. Um, and Buddy was my main high school friend, but that's one of the ways I got connected. Anyway, they had a bunch of cars at Dr. Miller's place, and they knew I was building a car, so Dr. Miller gave me a car. It was a Morris Minor. I used the transmission from the Morris Minor and a few other parts. Hmm. And then the engine was from a, a, a car from the 50s called Crossley. I liked the Crossley engine because it was, um, uh, it was overhead cam, which was very unusual in those days. Hmm. So we were trying to build a 750cc race car because that was part of the setup at the local uh, sports car racetrack. Hmm. And we got it built, but we never got a body on it. So oh. it was a it was a real speedy frame. <laughs> <laughs> is this where the illustration kind of came into the picture? It is. Uh, when I first um, uh, went out to be an illustrator, after being educated at, at Art Center in California, um, my skills were not particularly up to a level where I was identifiable among the hordes of other. Uh, new illustrators hmm. but I got lucky and um, 
connected it with, I had raced motorcycles in my youth and I got connected with motorcycle art. Uh, a guy who lived in my house uh, worked at a magazine called Car and Driver and um, he told me that they were about to do an article about motorcycles and that I, he knew I was an illustrator. He says, why don't you draw some motorcycles? Maybe you'll get the job. And I told him, I, I, I don't draw motorcycles. I ride motorcycles. I'm not a vicarious motorcyclist. <laughs> and he said, I want to make important pictures, like things that are crucial to mankind, man's inhumanity to man. And he looked at me with a smile and he said, you know, Baron, you don't know shit about those things. What you know is motorcycles. So why don't you draw motorcycles? No, 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 come on, I don't want to be a buff. I want to be an artist. Yeah. You know? He said, just, just draw the motorcycles. I did, and it started me off on a whole career of tech kind of stuff. Mm, like concept art? Um, like concept art for the motorcycles? Um, I have done... Um, uh, use my technical tendencies and education to understand complicated machines. I did the space shuttle for NASA. Hmm. And um, How'd you I, get that gig? Wow. Well, it was a step up from the other gigs that I'd been doing. You know, I worked for years for Flying Magazine and for Cycle World Magazine and for Cycle Magazine. And there was crossover into into cars and then planes and then um, I was doing all this aviation stuff and uh, yeah somebody finally connected the dots and thought well your next step is space art mm. and I had been doing pretty well with that and had a fairly good reputation so I don't remember exactly how it happened but they contacted me and uh and or my agent and uh, wanted me to do a the first technical illustration of the space shuttle. The shuttle didn't exist hmm. at that point. I mean, it existed, but it was in four big chunks all across the country: in Edwards Air Force Base, Houston, Memphis, various places. And um, I was familiar with working with. Um, uh, you know, complicated information. And I was fairly good at it. I had a technical bent. Um, but this was kind of like, this was really major. You know, it was in the 70s. I was pretending to be an astronaut. <laughs> I had my little astronaut outfit. Yeah. When I went to meetings to show my art, I looked like a jock. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you, it's kind of like a method acting, but in this case, you're like method artist, you know, trying to fill in the role. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, space was very exciting in the 70s. and um, Was that the space race? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, NASA was... Uh, um, had a certain uh, romance that was connected to science fiction and space exploration. And, you know, the astronauts were like heroes. And uh, 
wanting to be one of them was typical of a lot of uh, people. And uh, I was as naive as anybody, you know. I I had my uh, boots and my khakis and my Halliburton aluminum, uh, uh, you know, case and. Uh, yeah. My sunglasses. <laughs> Your aviator sunglasses? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Did you get a chance to meet any of the astronauts? I met a lot of people, and I met some astronauts, um, but uh, they were astronauts that were not known at that time. They were in training. And I, um, and I, I didn't really um, uh, have this kind of like, uh, star wanting to be connected to the stars. I wanted to be the star. <laughs> so I had a lot of ego, and it served me well in that project. Ah, okay. This shuttle, which looks kind of like a, a train with a big fin sticking up in the back, they wanted to make look like a, yes, a spacecraft. Right. You know, so there was a lot of fantasy associated with what a spacecraft should look like. And uh, so I exaggerated various things about the shuttle to make it look, you know, uh, like a, you know, a spacecraft and, you know, romanticized it. Mm -hmm. I used uh, distortion on it to make it look more triangular than it really is. And, uh, and they dug it. It was good. It went well, you know. Uh, well, not for everybody. One guy really hated what I did because I was doing a poster for high school classrooms and NASA had never done a poster that was about Hot Rod, you know. It was always like Dark Side of the Moon, uh, Saturn's Rings, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it worked very well in a science class. And all of a sudden I had done this thing that looked, you know, kind of like, you know, something out of a movie. Uh, but it was successful. Went all the way to making a postage stamp. You know? Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, and it set me on a road to doing scientific stuff uh, that was not necessarily transportation-oriented. Hmm. It hmm. was trans at first. and um, But I started getting into other sciences because when I was working on the shuttle painting in D.C., I had to do some changes on it, and, and I brought it down to D.C. to work in the studios there. And a bunch of guys from the National Geographic showed up. And they they liked it. It was seven feet wide, so it was pretty impressive. And uh, they liked it, and they asked me if I wanted to work for the Geographic. And I said, sure. And I went on, and, you know, my first job for them was about bird migration which was kind of a connection to space exploration. Right, right. You know? And so uh, it was all working really well. I did a lot of work for them uh, yeah. over the years. Um, and from there I got into subatomic particles and more sophisticated science. Hmm. And, uh, You're a big science guy. It's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, here you are doing concept art and doing a variety of illustrations for mechanical things, mm -hmm. which have to be fairly precise. And then I look at your artwork, and it's chaotic in such a beautiful way. So I wondered, did you always have, like, did your style evolve since? 
Yeah. Um, okay. Here's the here's the bit, and uh, you know this is not not pleasing to everybody, but I'll tell it tell it like it is. I went to Art Center School, which was a great school in L.A. Right in L.A. Got it. Yeah. Um, the uh, thing I was naive. I was I was nineteen when I went there, and um, you know I had never drawn a naked person before you know having a beautiful young naked woman standing in front of me in life drawing class was like kind of a shock you know anyway yeah. um art center was was really great but it was not it was not um it was not exactly the kind of input that would really develop me because of my parents I had a fairly sophisticated idea of what art was and what aesthetics were. They had been feeding me stuff to make me learn about um, uh, painting, the history of art, and all that for quite a while. And in those days, illustration, which was my study, was very commercial. It was really commercial. It seemed like the best gig around was the ladies' magazines, you know. Ladies Home Journal, McCall, Saturday Evening Post, they would all have big full-color illustrations in them. Mm -hmm. You know, famously Norman Rockwell covers and things like that. But also these romantic situations, you know, where everybody was fashionable and, you know, and uh, female readership really enjoyed reading these these stories. Mm -hmm. So at the just at the time I was there, you know, the prevailing pathway to illustration success was what they call the, the boy-girl illustration. A romantic situation between a young man and a young woman, noticeably affluent or upscale, you know, fashionable. Fashion art was big, you know. Uh, you know, it, you don't see that much fashion drawing these days but in those days the fashion artists that were popular were huge they were international heroes and uh, you know um, drawing in line was uh, you know was considered very artistic you know <laughs> these days you know it's got to be you know full full renaissance rendering a la photoshop you know or, right. or forget it you know but you know we were taught things like line quality and stuff like that. Um, it was good, but it was all aimed at a commercial career. And I was learning while I was there about fine art and digging it. It was a very um, important revolutionary period for American painting. It started with uh, European artists coming to this country and teaching young American students about advanced experimentalism, mm -hmm. uh, the various kinds of abstraction and, um, you know, Dada and various other things that had been developed in European art uh, after World War One as an almost a anti-art you know, Mona Lisa's mustache, and uh, you know, the, one of the reigning painters at that time was Willem de Kooning. I saw his works at the museums, and it was kind of awesome how different they were from anything we were doing at Art Center, mm -hmm. you know. 
Um, and I asked one of my favorite teachers there, Mr. Jean Fleury, Mr. Fleury, should I take this kind of painting seriously? It's like way different from what I see in the ladies' magazines. Right. And he said, yes, Mr. Story, you should take it seriously. They were very formal in those days. They called us by our Mr. name. And um, I loved Jean Fleury because he had worked on my favorite sequence in Fantasia, which is Night on Bald Mountain. Is that the one with the demon? No. The demon comes out of the mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Oh man. I thought that was hot stuff. That scarred me as a child. And, yeah. And Jean Fleury was, uh, was I think, the uh, uh, was pretty much a leader in the, that particular episode. So he was a tall, kind of crusty, uh, sarcastic fellow, but I thought he was cool. And he said, "Do it," you know. He challenged me to make a copy of a de Kooning, and I could not do that at all. Mm. And, you know, it's kind of dumb, but I thought, yeah, stuff that I can't do that is acknowledged as great art, there must be something there. So I spent a lifetime kind of vacillating between my natural instinct to draw lines and precise blueprint-like details and doing what I call splat, which is trying to learn the lessons of advanced modernism or what I think of as advanced modernism you know it was just a period there you know Jackson Pollock was celebrated by a pop magazine by Life magazine and all of a sudden a wide world knew about avant-garde painting mm -hmm. you know and it had a, a veneer of romance and was getting some acceptance and I wanted to be like Jackson. I thought it'd be better to be like Jackson than some of the people that were painting these pictures of fashionable looking people, you know. It, it was also, I don't know, it was also suburban somehow. Uh, I loved de Kooning, you know, loved Franz Klein, uh, you know, I loved all the painters, Jasper Johns, you know, they were doing things that revolutionized uh, American painting. And it was profound enough that it actually did what the hype said. It shifted the center of art from Paris to New York. Mm -hmm. So I was in California discovering these artists. Then I went to New York where I was right in the center of it. And I spent... I worked in an ad agency, but it was only a couple of blocks from the Museum of Modern Art. I spent my lunches there every day, and I just ate it up. In those days, they had Picasso's Guernica in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and all the studies that Picasso had done for it. And I had been grooving on Picasso ever since I was a kid, because I... I don't know. There's this exciting thing when kids get old enough to take the bus downtown mm -hmm. without parents. Uh -huh. You know, and it's exploration. You go downtown, you know what that, that's about, and you explore. And the library was there, and I went to the library, and I discovered they had a complete set of Picasso sketchbooks. And Picasso was a big deal in those days. It was just like um, a buzz. 
And so I sat down with the sketchbooks and I was completely fascinated. Uh, people who are in the know about that can see that all over the stuff that I've done. You know, it was Picasso's a big influence of yours. Sure, huge, huge. Yeah. Uh, Picasso, unlike de Kooning, drew pen and ink drawings, and I did that. You know, there's an awful lot of rendered Picassos and some wonderful ones. But when I looked at Guernica, I saw black outlines around shapes and things like that. And um, that confirmed my line interest. You know, I, it took me a long time to really realize that I didn't know very much about tonality because I was so used to drawing lines. Right, yeah. You know, but you know, over many years, I wanted to try everything. And uh, so by the time I got around to doing my fine art, the innovations of those abstraction pioneers had faded into the past. Along came a whole series of rather sarcastic, snarky, arts, pop, you know, and uh, concept and things like that. Whereas abstract expressionism was about energy and graphic possibilities, you know. And I was stuck in that groove. It wasn't just the abstraction. I loved the European precedents that produced that abstraction. I could look at Max Beckman and love it, you know. All those Weimar artists in Germany, George Gross, oh my God, Otto Dix, oh my God, you know. <laughs> this was not ladies' magazine illustration, you know. And I wanted to go there. And uh, I, have, I have developed a reputation for being, you know, uh, on the dark side, you know. Uh, but my career split at a certain point. I was doing these very technical illustrations, working very close to science. Yeah. And at the same time, I was doing these experimental pieces in my journals that would, you know, take me in another direction. At a certain point, my life kind of collapsed. Uh, divorce remarriage. Was this in the 80s or 90s? Uh, no, this is earlier. This was um, 70s. 70s? Yeah. And uh, the death of my parents and uh, various other things that just shattered my illusions. And I put all that emotion into my journals and I liked what was going on there. And so did some other people. Well, but the people that I was used to pleasing mm -hmm. in the mainstream, you know, I thought I was nuts. I moved downtown. I started playing in a punk band. My agent at the time thought I had lost my mind. But what happened was, at a certain point in my development, I pretty much had two crowds that thought I was okay, but they didn't like each other. Right. So it was like my work and my psyche split. 
I'm still interested in science. I'm still interested in a lot of things that the mainstream advocates. But I wanted to keep this exploration, this experimentation going. And I found that the people that liked my mainstream work hated my experimental work. You just couldn't appease one or the other. I, and the people that liked my experimental work, they hated my mainstream work. Uh-huh. You know, so it was like, oops. Do what I have to do, choose sides? And since I've been teaching all these years, that was pretty dicey too. Well, as an artist, how much do you value these opinions of others when it comes to your own art? Do you, do you feel like there was a bit of a, of a fuck you attitude, I draw what I want to do? Well, that's a tricky question because I know it's, it's commonplace to put it in those terms these days. Mm-hmm. But I was brought up by very serious people who believed that life was about service. Mm. All right? As Dylan Song says, you gotta serve somebody. That's very true. You know? And so, I also did not like the idea of a day job. You know, working some some job during the day just so you could be an artist, you know, in your own time. Talk You're, about spiritual slavery. <laughs> I was in New York, and there's a unique thing about New York when it comes to that issue. Hmm. In New York, unlike California, whatever you do for a living is who you are. Hmm. There's no, I also, I mean, a little theater group, are also, you know, do macrame, or I also have my own etchings. You know, when I'm not waiting tables. If you wait tables, that's you. Because that's how your income is made. In New York's aesthetic. Or at least how I experienced it. Mm-hmm. And it was good. It was good. It actually made sense. It cuts down on the posers, the dilettantes, and really draws a strong line around what is and what is not serious art. So I liked it, you know, um, and I wanted to pursue it. Um, I had started painting before I went to New York. After school, I went back to Texas, and I was painting away, painting away. But when I got to New York, I walked around in the galleries and the museums, and I thought, ha, <laughs> You, I don't know diddly squat about painting, Baron. At the avant-garde galleries, I could walk in. I tell these stories a lot, so I'm aware of repetition, but it's, it's the rap, so I'll do it anyway. I walked into Sidney Janis Gallery, which is on 57th Street in New York, was one of the leading galleries in those days. Still is big. Okay, they represented a lot of the um, uh, leading mm-hmm. new artists. And hanging from the ceiling was about a 14 foot high model of an electric fan like my grandmother had with the cage around blades and everything. But it was sagging. It was made out of Nagahad. It was a Claes Oldenburg pop piece. The gigantic electric fan, black Nagahad hanging from the sea. I have these little figure paintings 
you know, in my studio, and I walk in and, holy smokes, what is that? Yeah. But I liked it. I thought, it's outrageous, but look at it. It's well-crafted. It's beautifully made. It makes a point, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, unlike anything I've ever seen before in my life. I actually investigated how much it was worth because I was wondering how much these outrageous artists made. And they said, well, the fan was 10 grand. I didn't have 10 grand, but that would have been a great buy. (laughs) You know, it would have been a great buy for this. Where would it fit? Yeah, I had no place to put it either. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, but you knew you wanted it. I knew it was good. Yeah. I knew it was good. I knew it made a mockery of the stuff that they had shown me at Art Center. Hmm. Now, that's a that's a rather negative thing to say about a school that really taught me a lot. But um, they, independent, the teachers independently knew something was going on that was, illustration was changing right along with art Mm -hmm. but um, the school was teaching pretty conservative ways you know based as usual on uh, um, representational art they had a few artists that were combining fashionable stuff with basically mainstream subject matter they were doing pretty well. Um, they just before I graduated. Um, well, let, let me just say the classes above me had like four, five, six artists that became huge in illustration. All of them doing work that pushed the envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Bob Peak was in the class one step ahead of me and Bob made a huge mark in the illustration world and there were others Jack Potter and various others um, so the school was not putting a lid on experimentalism per se they wanted illustration to evolve but there was just such a gap between you know a fashionably new-looking illustration in a ladies' magazine and a woman won, you know, by de Kooning. Right. So, I wanted to do both things. I had been illustrating since I was really small. I I was the illustrator that did all the stuff in the schools. Like your high school? Yeah, I illustrated the yearbook, you know. I did portraits of the teachers. Do you, do you feel that's where you felt a bit of the ego came from, from a young age? People really validating your work. You mentioned earlier that you had, the ego was there in your younger years. I was a lucky, lucky kid. My parents really thought I was better than I was you know they're very supportive parents they not (laughs) only supported me they gave me an exaggerated (laughs) sense of my ability yeah and uh, I always thought everything I did was pretty good 
That, you know, that's and then important. my parents would say it's very good. Right, but that's important. I think as an artist, you need to have some confidence to to do a, to work on a piece, right? Yeah. But there's tricks. I was the best artist in my high school, and I thought I was really good. I got to Art Center, and I didn't even make a pip on the screen. Oh, man. There were so many great artists. It was right after the Korean War, and there were a lot of very determined artists there who were using their GI Bill to go to art school, and these guys were great, you know? I couldn't even make a dent, you know? And that was crushing, because I thought I was good. But in a way, it was also uh, a good lesson. You know, you think you're good. Uh, well, take a look at that. And I had been doing that by comparing my stuff to serious art. So it was in, yeah, I was inclined to go that way. Hmm. Tell me a bit about your involvement with graphic novels. I think it makes sense uh, for you to go from fine art and illustrations uh, then to graphic novel, which maybe it's a different play field because now you're also dealing with storytelling. Yeah. Oh, it's a different play field. Um, well, here's the deal. I was teaching at Pratt Institute, 1980 or so. I have in my class really talented artists who were one day all going to be famous, all right? And they said to me, we want to do comics. And I said, cool, do comics. And they said, but all our other teachers tell us that comics are just, you know, a, a little league, you know, and that we should try to aim higher than that. And I said, well, you know, it's not about that, what you're doing, it's about how well you do it. He said, if you want to do comics, do great comics. And these people, these students did great comics and they all became famous. This is, you know, the likes of Kent Williams and um, uh, George. George, George, George. I can't think of George's last name. George, George the Jazz Man. Uh, George Pratt. The same name as the school. Well, I should have been able to read. I remember <laughs> that. Um, George Pratt was in there. Peter Cooper, who became a real innovative um, satirical cartoonist, a uh, satirical artist, and uh, John Van Fleet, who took off in the direction of uh, science uh, fiction and fantasy art. And you know, I'm leaving others out. You know, people that were really, you know. Great. They wanted to paint, and I had been teaching them to paint. But comics in those days wasn't about paint. It was about penciling and inking and coloring. And I encouraged them. I said, you know, paint. Go ahead and paint. Mm -hmm. And Kent and George and the rest of them, they did. And not only did they paint, but they made history. <laughs> those comics to this day are fantastic, fantastic. You know, the big money uh, uh, people in comics kind of came back strong with the big superhero thing. But for a while, there was painted all the way through comic stuff happening 
that was just extraordinary. And the people that saw it wanted to do it, and that produced a new generation of people going in that direction. Now painted comics are common, you know, and it's not like you want to you pick up a comic book and it's all dark inked outlines and and washes of color over it or something, you know. It's a full range of art possibilities. And the same thing goes for the way stories are told. As I said, um, the big money wanted to really push the uh, superhero franchise. And Marvel and DC, you know, have you know, gone subsequently into filmmaking and things where the big money is. And comic books were never about big money, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So uh, it's understandable what's happened, uh, but the fact is there are really unbelievably sophisticated artists working in the graphic novel form, not only using art techniques that are way beyond the reach or uh, the outreach of more conventional comics of the past, but also telling stories, not just, you know, fables, you know, with predictable endings, good guys always win. I'm talking serious literary investment, comics that are really about serious topics, you know. And that's why they're graphic novels on the shelves of bookstores, where they used to be on the rotating wire rack at the drugstore, you know. Mm -hmm. you know? Well, what was your approach? to well, painting a story? I have always, well not always, but ever since school days, I've been doing, keeping a personal journal. Um, the, um, the, I'm at about 222, number 222 journal. I've illustrated my whole life in these books. And this is my little travel journal. It's just something I have with me when I'm going places. But I have these big books of drawings and paintings. And um, my students were very enthusiastic about these books. And they saw in them, because I do every page tells a story kind of thing, that I could work in comics or graphic novels. And sure enough, you know, Kent and George and others had friends, namely Dave McKean. <laughs> and Dave came to San Francisco. I had a show up in a gallery. My student friends of his told him about the show. He came over, checked out the show. Then he came to my studio and checked it out. Long story short, we became friends. Hmm. And I loved, loved, loved Dave's work. He was doing Sandman covers that were works of art, you know, right along the line of Canton, George, and John, and the others, you know, um, pushing, pushing away from all the predictables. And, um, So, I really admired this this artist. I got his work, loved it, was very impressed that I'd had him in my studio, 
we developed a, uh, a, a relationship. And then, of all things, Dave sent me a copy of some work that he had just done and wanted me to crit it. And I'm thinking, who am I to crit this guy? He's just, he's in control, you know? Right, yeah. But through teaching, I was kind of used to telling people what to do. <laughs> Not being told what to do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've been teaching for 50 years, so I've been around a lot of people that are junior enough to me that I can act like I know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Whether I do or not is questionable, but uh, I was used to it. And when he said he'd like me to do a crit on his work, I, mean, I, I was nonplussed. Your work is so fantastic, how can I do a crit on But I thought, okay. And I gave him a pretty strident crit. Um, and he changed his work because of that and did a tribute to me in the new edition of something called White Noise, mm -hmm. uh, one of his early graphic novel outings. And uh, we became really close. And uh, whenever he came to San Francisco, we hung out, hung out at Comic-Con. I watched his kids grow up and, you know, it was great. I'm still in awe of that guy. So much so that I embarrass myself by acting like a fanboy when I'm around him. <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, you, it was my students who said you should be making comics because your journals look like comics, hmm. and uh, that really meant graphic novels more than mainstream comics in those days. So I tried, and I could not do it. I just couldn't do it. Hmm. I never dreamed that there was anything in terms of making pictures that I couldn't do, but I couldn't do comics. It was because I was coming from, am I over talking this? No, you're fine. I was coming from a place where every picture tells a story, and that's not true of comics. It's a bunch of pictures tell a story. Right, that should be connected. Right, it's right. sequential, you know. And then you're dealing with action scenes as well, which is a whole different element now. That's right. And I was doing it all in one picture, and taught to do that and to feel good about that aesthetic. I didn't even know how to do a picture that didn't have a whole lot to say, you know. A picture that was just a lead up to another picture. A picture that just worked in connection with other pictures. I didn't know how to do it. I was so used to like working my ass off to make one picture look terrific that it seemed like, oh my God, now I've got to do, what, a hundred of these damn things? You know? <laughs> so it was troublesome, but I had the journals and I made a stab at thinking of them as graphic novel. And it kind of worked. My first book was called The Maratsad Journals, and it's based on a famous play. And so it has a narrative through line. And I was working in theater in those days, so I was used to storytelling in that medium. Mm -hmm. And so I started doing a journal for each show that I was in. 
we did Julius Caesar, so I did a journal for Julius Caesar, and therefore I developed the ability to have a through line, you know? What theater company were you with? It was called Elbows Akimbo. It was basically a, a neo-pagan <laughs> San Francisco experimental ensemble. Uh-huh. It was neo-pagan. It sounds ridiculous, but uh, it is that they like that, and uh, I thought they were terrific. Really exciting. I I started off by just doing like, um, you know. Uh, suggestions for sets and costumes and things like that. By the time I had gone through a bunch of different plays, I was like writing. Actually, it was adaptation, but I took uh, Peter Weiss's uh, famous um, play, uh, which generally is called Marassad, and did a version of it for the company. And we produced it, performed it. It was pretty interesting. Uh, then um, the director of that company invited me to uh, uh, take on the task of writing a show. Well, I wasn't up to it. I couldn't write. I really couldn't write that much. But I started a technique of writing for a show, which was doing comics. Mm -hmm. I did a comic strip. Uh, instead of a script complete with drawings of the characters and talk balloons and the whole comic thing and I would present these comics to the actors and directors with each rehearsal hmm. and in that way I kind of kept moving along you know in, in theater but I wasn't really liking it that much because theater is vastly collaborative yeah yeah you know and I was a one-man show have you thought about going to the motion pictures um, only in the early days doing like art for promotion of a film I'm very impressed with people like David Mack who've been able to connect with uh, movies and television and things like that um, and I see the the results in the new the films that come out it's just getting really sophisticated um, art I go online and look at art and after a while I have to turn it off it's just too damn good you know I just end up like surfing 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 oh my god there's another great piece of art you know and um, you know because of my advanced age this is not a healthy thing <laughs> it now, makes me feel like a Methuselah now how do you feel about evolution in the 21st century since it's so digital that means it's almost it's saturated with so much art so much illustration on the computer on the TV in the movies did you feel like that shift coming? Um, it's an interesting topic, and I have um, probably more than you want to hear to say about it. When I left Art Center, I was really disenchanted with illustration, so I tried to paint. I painted and painted and painted and painted, sticking canvases under my bed and all that sort of storage problem, um, and I just wasn't very good 
and as I said, about that time I went to New York and I discovered it's not that you're not that good. You suck. <laughs> you know, that was my take. <laughs> All right. You are your own harshest critics. Yeah. Uh, but I enrolled in a class in New York with a famous illustrator of the day, Robert Weaver. I had seen Weaver's work and really loved it and collected um, uh, care sheets on him. There was a thing happening in California before I went to New York, which is known as uh, Bay, Area, Bay Area figurative painting. This includes some wonderful artists who didn't get any recognition from the New York crowd for a long time, Richard Diebenkorn, David Park, various others. Um, I really liked that because as much as I wanted to be like de Kooning, I liked to paint recognizable things. Absolute all-out abstraction didn't work for me. So the artist that I wanted to, that I was talking about worked in a way that was kind of like de Kooning. All right? It was unheard of, even in those days. Robert Weaver was thought of by a lot of people that were important to me as the most innovative artist, uh, illustrator of that era. Uh, Mr. Weaver, I always called him that even though we became close, but he was always Mr. Weaver. Um, he did things that were completely against the prevailing school of the previous generation, which was called the Westport guys. In Westport, you had people like Austin Briggs, Bernie Fuchs, and various others who were masters of the fashionable, good-looking ladies' magazine illustration. And a younger generation like Mark English coming along, but they all worked in a um, in a manner that was uh, dependent upon photo reference, and Weaver didn't. He just drew it. He just like put his pencil down or his pen or his brush and drew it, and it didn't matter if it was highly rendered, it never was highly rendered. He got he said what needed to be said with his drawings and his brush and didn't, you know, pour the sauce on top of it. And I like that raw quality. Plus, he's an intellectual, a man of social concerns, and he tended to illustrate stories that had a social component and that's where my parents were at mm -hmm. you know uh, so I really admired him and I took his class at School of Visual Arts when I went to New York and to this day he is my you know guru uh, he's passed now uh, but all his life and and beyond he set the standard for illustration for me. Uh, 
he was a, an extreme uh, realist along the pathway that was initially established by a group of artists who were called the Ashcan School, or the Eight. This included a bunch of uh, art, art students from the Art Students League who were told by a famous teacher, Robert Henry, to get out of the classroom, go out on the streets and paint what they saw. And Bellows and Glacken and Glacken and uh, the rest of them, uh, Reginald Marsh, they did that. So we had a whole American art um, thing that was a response, in a way, to the European modernists. It was like, we're Americans, and we're going to do American art. You know, we're not going to sit back, sit home and imitate Picasso. We'll let Baron do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Anyway, I took Weaver's class, really admired him. I wrote down everything he said, even when I couldn't understand it, and it provided a basis for me to become a teacher myself. Hmm. And uh, I loved illustration, so did he. He liked it better than fine art, you know. A very journalistic documentary orientation, you know. Um, he believed that the job of the artist was, uh, along with people, like, he believed, along with people like Shakespeare, that the job of the artist was to hold a mirror up to nature. You know, and that didn't mean being a realist. That meant finding the truth. He said at one point, "You guys draw well enough." you paint well enough, you need to see better. <laughs> Very and profound, it, wow. Yeah, he was always profound, heavy, as we used to say in those days. All the students who worked with him got the same message. Hmm. And so he was a crusty guy who could really break your heart. You know, you work your ass off to impress him and you show it to him and he just laughs at it. Oh boy! Yeah, that's oh boy. that's tough. <laughs> but he was right, <laughs> you know. And we, the students, knew it, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, he was right. When I was a per when I became a personal friend of his, I used to try to give him presents, and I'd find some art book that I thought, oh man, Weaver's gotta love this. I'd give it to him, and he'd, he'd just laugh. Said, I don't want this. Break my heart, man. You can at least like, pretend to like it. <laughs> you know? um, you've taught for so many years, for decades. Uh, how how was that transition? Because I'm sure you were in the forefront of it, where of the digital age, and how that kind of kind of transformed illustration to what it is now. Um. As you can tell, I have probably too much to say about all these questions and issues, uh, but there's a kind of a double whammy with that. Um, I think it's ironic that Photoshop asked you if you want to change the size of your canvas. You know, you're not working on canvas. You know, it's digital, man. Mm -hmm. Canvas is something else. You know, 
Oh, well, then, uh, you know, would you like to choose a brush? That's not a fucking brush. <laughs> you know, but it's changed. Like, just as recently as last week, one of my students said, well, the difference between CS6 and CC is they've got some great new brushes. Oh, well. You know, what I'm saying here is that the digital art was built on the structure of art that was non-digital to a great extent. Photoshop is named photo because it is aimed at manipulating photographs. I spoke to you earlier about how I didn't want to be one of those illustrators who worked from photographs, even though I spent a little time doing uh, photorealist magazine covers. Anyway, what we're getting at here is, what is the difference between a drawing and a photograph? You know? Right. That's what the difference, that's what we're getting at. Everything digital is photographic. Even if you drew it on your Wacom tablet, you know, it's digital. That means that it's based on photography. Why is it based on photography? Because of the difference between raster and vector. Your hand is vector, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Your I feel like eye, you put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. Your hand is vector, man. Yeah. <laughs> your eyeballs are raster, okay? Your eyeballs have a whole lot of sensors inside that divide every image up into a zillion little, let's call them pixels. Mm-hmm. Okay? Okay, but your hand doesn't do that. Your hand puts down a pencil and moves it. All right? It doesn't... I mean, you can do it with pointillism or whatever. It doesn't try to make an image out of dots, basically. It's vector. And the thing about vector is, without you realizing it, you're telling something about yourself whenever you make a mark. That's why signatures are protected by law. To imitate a signature is forgery. It's not forgery to imitate the makeup that somebody wears or the look they have, the haircut or the clothes and try to look just like your favorite movie star. You know? It's body energy that goes into that signature. You know, imagine, and I've actually seen an example, somebody who decided to sign their name in pointillism. Hello, I'm imitating the sound of pointillism now. You know, I knew an artist that decided to sign his name with rubber stamps. But generally speaking, signatures are big time. There's a whole bunch of walls in every city that are telling you that mm-hmm. because they're great big signatures. We call it graffiti. It's signatures. <laughs> you learn how to read that in terms of reading letters, mm. you know, and reading words, you know. It's great, big, energetic, spray can signatures, you know, all vector. Human energy. Human energy. 
you could just hold a can and spray it and get a nice, beautiful gradation. You don't do that. You take the can and you spray and you move that son of a gun. All over the place. Vector, vector, vector. <laughs> All right? Um, vector is, um, is like the parts of the body that are rhythmic, the heartbeat, you know. The language, the written language is like a heartbeat. You make one letter at a time. Boom, 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 you know. And the blood flows just like the lines in a signature. Moves from one place, goes to another place, goes wrapping around, wrapping around. Wrapping no straight around. lines. No straight lines. The it's very much a question of what's wrong with Photoshop? It's not physical. Mm. You look like a wimp with that pen and that that tablet in your hand. You know, I'm a musician, and electronic music took a big shock when computers started entering the scene. And I remember one of the guys in my band saying, when we went to a show, he says, they're a bunch of fucking typists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's true. Yeah. And that's what digital art is like. It's a bunch of fucking typists. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I'm going over the top yeah. here, but you know, I really think, I really think it's made it almost, almost, almost an invitation to do something that looks like crap. Hmm. You know? Because at least with with uh, hand stuff, you can say it's authentic, right? There's yeah. a, there's a certain level of authenticity with it. Whether it's good art, bad art, you know that at the other line of that picture, a, a human did it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, all my life, because I was influenced by those abstract expressionists back in, uh, in the late 50s, expressionism has seemed to me to be not only a valid form of aesthetics, the only form, the only form. What is there? What is there besides expression? You know, well, documentation. You know, uh, poetic um, embracing of the world. You know, uh, celebrating vision. You know, all good stuff. But all of that's expression too. Hmm. You know, I am not interested in. Uh, well, let's let's go around this one with this dog leg. I've been involved in experimental electronic music all my life, and um, and well, all my adult life, and um, I have a lot of synthesizers. I really was enthusiastic when Robert Moog developed the first synthesizers. I was on the scene watching that happen and there were a bunch of crazy guys in Northern California who were making music out of squeaks and blips and things. 
And I thought, this is the oral equivalent of abstract expressionist painting. This is expression sans expectation, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, what I'm getting at here is it was a perfect synthesis for me because I was already a combo, like I've been telling you, of a guy who was interested in tech and a guy who wanted to express, you know? So that I followed it. I wanted to set up a museum of synths uh, because I followed it really close and I got an example of each new development. Oh my God, you know, forget monophonic. We've got polyphonic synths now. Oh my God, you don't have, you don't have, pressure sensitive on that instrument you gotta get another instrument pretty soon I had a museum like collection that told the whole history of musical synthesis and what happened same thing as Photoshop as soon as an electronic device could make you think you were hearing a real violin game over wow game over well on that note uh, we reached the hour mark (laughs) (laughs) we're closing up shop now okay I'm sorry I talked too much no no no. better you than me yeah a lot more to say than I I do for sure in the subject but before we go that embarrasses me I should have let you ask questions no that's fine you made my job a lot easier I much prefer that Uh, but I I do want to play in a couple things Uh, you have a new book that's out the Trump book, which is available, Trumped, on, yeah, Trumped, which is avail- available on uh, Blurb. Blurb has it, yeah. Yeah, uh, tell me a bit about this book and and uh, how it came about. That's that's like asking me how do you feel about Trump. <laughs> you know, For what in I, the middle of 2017. Those of us who are politically active or are interested were watching the approaching election. And here comes Donald Trump. And he's ridiculous from the get-go. Yeah. And you cannot believe that anybody would think that this guy could be president. And yet, because of elect, uh, party dynamics, and the ridiculous uh, battle between the Republicans and the Democrats and all that. God, I can remember when the idea of a two-party system was being revised, you know, and you had independents, at least libertarians, you know. We don't even talk about those anymore. It's like, you know, the big two. And um, my family was uh, Democratic. I was very close to the liberal kind of definition and still am but I'm not uh, I wasn't agitated about anything because I really love Barack Obama Mm -hmm. he was the most intelligent sensitive person that I'd ever seen in the presidency he could convince me of things where I always felt like other politicians were trying to force me into something. He was persuasive, and let's face it, I, I came from a family that worked for, the, for uh, the, the improvement of the lives of poor people. And 
you know, that include race. And we had, thank goodness, wasn't it about time? We had a non-white president. Yay! So I was a happy cat. And that was two terms. So it had been a long time since I, you know, really got my dander up. Mm -hmm. And along comes Trump. And I fucking freaked out. A lot of us did. And the freak out is in that book. It starts on the um, campaign. Lock her up! Lock her up! The lies, the outright evil and stupidity of not only that man, but the people that were willing to support that kind of stuff in order to grab what they felt was their share of power. It pissed me off. It infuriated me. And every day, it's still happening. Every day you go online or listen to the radio and there's a new fucking bombshell from that idiot. What can I tell you? So, I've been through Robert Weaver teaching me you draw well enough, you paint well enough, you don't see well enough. And I'm like seeing Donald Trump and his horde. So I just drew it into my book, drew it into my book, drew it into my book. There isn't a thing in my book, I'm ready to swear, that isn't true. There's a page where you've got Donald saying, you can do anything you want. You can grab this election by the pussy. Did I make that up? No, no. Nope. We all know where that one came from. Yep, we all know. How, how many illustrations are in this book? Uh, I can't remember. Oh. It's not a fat volume. Maybe 35, 40. I don't know how many pages it is. Probably double that, because I'm thinking of how many pieces of paper. I know. Hmm. Um, anyway, it was, it was printed and designed my my agent and uh, I have been the beneficiary of an awful lot of stuff that has been generated by my friend and agent Ryan Graff. His company uh, Adelon is you know, responsible for a lot of stuff that I've done. And I show my paintings in his booth at Comic-Con and that sort of thing. And uh, politics was always my parents' thing. And I grew up, before I was able to know anything about it, watching political reportage, political conventions on TV, you know, for hours with my parents. So, I have respect. 
for the kind of commitment it takes for a person to com to go into public service. And I still think of politics as public service. You know, uh, pay is not that good. You know, uh, you have to work real hard. Uh, you're accountable, and who knows? Uh, you know, uh, Stormy Daniels may show up. <laughs> uh, that's what happened, I think, to Bill Clinton. But anyway, um, the book is a no holds barred expression of whatever I was feeling on a certain day in response to the Trump campaign. And I think a lot of other people were feeling a lot of these things too. Mm -hmm. So while there are people that correctly emphasize the best answer is to, to be active on coming up with an alternative, not to waste all your energy criticizing what is, but to think about what could be and work towards achieving it. That makes perfect sense. But, you know, I'm, I'm not able to contain my disappointment. I saw a program, a film really, um, on the last days of David Bowie, and I was a big David Bowie fan. And there was a quote in there that stuck with me. He said, I had great hopes for the 21st century. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well said. And then he died. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, also, you have a show coming up in San Jose on April 6th. Yep. That's my birthday. That's my show opening. Yeah. Where, where is it being held? Uh, it's at... Um, uh, a gallery Anno Domini. Oh, with Cherry uh, Lakeley, right? Yeah, uh, with Brian and Sherry, and um, it's on First Street in San Jose. Uh, and uh, I've had a lot of shows there. It's a great place to hang out. Even, there's always something cool to see mm -hmm. at Anno Domini, and uh, I am delighted to be doing another show there. How did you get involved in the San Jose art scene? Because you also taught at San Jose I, State. I've been teaching in San Jose for many, many years. And through that, you caught on to Anno Domini? One of my students connected me with Anno Domini. Huh. And they offered me a show, and I did it. It was called More BS Than You Can Shake a Stick At. And it was successful. And then I did another one political one that was very successful in its own way called Black Iraq uh, and then it was like kind of well established that I would be if I wanted to do something with a rather controversial topic I could and I ended up doing suicide where I interviewed everybody I knew asking if they knew anyone that took their own life. And I discovered to my amazement that almost everybody did. Hmm. Yeah. Well over 50%, probably 
probably into the 60 percentiles knew somebody. Sometimes it was somebody they didn't have a personal relationship with, but somebody in their high school or something like that. You know, sometimes it was personal. A lot of it was military losses. PTSD related? Yep, and suicide. You know, uh, more than half of ex-military people kill themselves. Did you know that? Think about that. More yeah. than half. Yeah. That's unacceptable. Absolutely unacceptable. I had uh, one of my pieces for that show in my car. Now I'm just rapping. I mean, I, I, I'm probably taking up your time that you need to use for something else. No, no, no. It's fine. I'll be out of here in no time. <laughs> we're almost done. We're, we're, we, we're there. We're at the finish line. Uh, Baron, thank you for coming. I, I appreciate you making the drive over here. Um, I, I, I thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's a unexpected thing. I've been interviewed before for for what I assume was podcast, but it was done by phone. Yeah. This is the first time I've had the pleasure of sitting in front of these very, very uh, uh, scientific-looking mics and equipment and all of that, <laughs> and, and doing it face-to-face, -face, and that's pleasant. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's very important because I knew when I was creating this podcast, I wanted to have very honest conversations with creative people in the community. And the only way you could, just like you said, there's authenticity with art. I feel the best way to get authentic conversation is when I'm looking at you. We're looking at each other. Yeah, it's um, it's it's true. The uh, uh, the pleasure of watching people really have a chance to talk uh, without without it having to be minced into sound bites. Yeah, you know. Yeah. is more and more rare yeah. and uh, um, I hope that you uh, do mince it into sound bites because I talk <laughs> too damn much but uh, whatever whatever it was a pleasure being here whatever insecurities you have I have those same insecurities for every episode and this is the 145th 46th episode I believe so uh, I, I get you don't worry it'll be fine Baron at the end of the day I'm sure it will be it'll be great yeah well thank you for coming Okay, thank thank you. How were the crackers and wine? I loved both of them. Nice. Yeah. Oops, Ooh. sorry. <laughs> yeah. And out we go. Okay. It got emotional at the end, but I think we made it through. Me and him, uh, after it, the conversation ended and the recording ended, uh, we still had a, a good chat uh, walking to his car. And I, once again, I felt very fortunate enough to have um, this very talented man in front of me. I mean, the guy ate my crackers and my and drank my wine. Like, like that doesn't happen often. Where a big artist, world-renowned artist, goes to your home and you feed them crackers and white wine. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. And the great thing I learned about this is it's all vector, man. It's all vector. 
And don't forget, he has a show coming up on April 6th at the Gallery of Anno Domini in downtown San Jose. And check it out. I'll be posting the event on the JMS Podcast social media. So don't forget to follow. Till then, have a great week. Have a great Sunday. And uh, waiting till next Sunday already. Sayonara.